Hello there, and welcome to Common Rider AA, the podcast where I just bought Final Fantasy VII Remake. So, let's hurry up and finish this so I can get back to Team Avalanche, alright? We, we need to save the world from the evil Shinra, one bomb at a time. But Shinra, like, put a rainbow in their logo, you, that, so surely they're progressive, right? There is no ethical Mako under capitalism. <laughs> uh, today we're going to be doing one episode of Common Rider Kiva, and that's Applause, Motherly Dedicated Transformation. Yep, this was a pretty good one. We had some good emotional payoff, and I'm hyped to get into it. Uh, I have to let you know that this came out September 7th, 2008. Oh, that was two days before my birthday. Oh, your birthday's the 9th of yes. September? Uh-huh. Oh, that's Scoochie. Uh, it was also written by Toshiki Inoue and written, directed by Hidenori Ishida. Who these three episodes they've been they've like it's been like, hey fam, we heard you, we heard you, and now we good. Like we good now, right? They didn't put in the best song in Common Rider Kiba's soundtrack and during the fight scene the, where the one that samples from uh, Frankenstein nineteen fifty seven. Curse of Frankenstein, yes. Uh I'm talking about Feel the Same, which I think is like an amazing track. But yeah, we can't get all the things we want in life. But we can get what we need, which is this episode. <laughs> Indeed. For the cold open, we expand on where we left off last time by showing that Wataru noticed that Keisuke saw him dehenshing. So we know that Wataru knows that Keisuke knows that he's Kiva. This is the beginning of some really good visual storytelling of whenever two characters are in like a heightened state of tension or disagreement, there's physical barriers between them. So after the OP, Megami is reporting to Shima about the Warthog Fengire's activities. She mentions that the Warthog is in pursuit of a being known as King. This seems to trigger something in Shima, and when Megami leaves... Shima lets slip the name Taiga. At the end of the episode, I'm going to grill you on all the Taiga theories you have. Because, like, how much was a shock that Shima knew Taiga's name? That actually took me off guard. I That that seems to hint at something deeper going on between the f- leadership of the Fengire and the leadership of the BSO. I forgot that uh, they dropped this this early, so... It's exciting to me. It's it's actually an interesting turn that the plot seems to be taking, but... Not to mention the Warthog Fangire talks about the rumor among the Fangires that the king has been raised among humans. Yeah. Is the current king of the Fangires, is he the adoptive son of the head of the BSO? And also, does does that mean that Shima and Maya like know each other and arrange like, a little playdate? With uh, Taiga and Wataru when they were young, it's like, all right, let's let's have my boys meet and hang out. Because, huh. oh God, I I wasn't even thinking as I said it, and now think I I did not have that theory, and like that's unfortunately not something confirmed, but that is now my new headcanon that Maya, you know, knew Shima through uh, through uh, Wataru's dad, and was like, hey, I want my son to know my other son. Do you mind if we arrange a play date? Would that also mean that Shima has known that Wataru is actually Kiva the whole time? That would mean that. All right, I'm gonna have to keep an eye out for some for some this for this stuff to double check. 
I'm intrigued. Let's keep it moving, though. In Maldemore, Megami and Mitsuhide continue to bitch at each other over their perceptions of what Yuri wanted for them. Megami reveals that Yuri actually wanted him to join the BSO, and that Megami is fighting in his place. Yeah, because uh, uh, that's because Mitsuhide is a punk-ass bitch. Can't handle a... Uh, Megami has more power in a single pinky than he has in his entire body. <laughs> Megami and Mitsuhide slap each other, and Megami storms out. We time-zitioned to 1986 at the Kurenai house, where Yuri is patching up Otoya and the arms monsters after that disastrous scuffle with Rook. I love that they're all just hanging out, and that we do not have a scene of Yuri being, wait, hold up, this giant man who, who, I, who I think either had sex with or killed my friend who vanished one day, and this young child are monsters that are not Fangire? Also, are, are we forgetting that are we forgetting that Riki killed one of Yuri's friends at the group date? Amber noted that the arms monster seemed to get away with murdering people with and that the moral implications of what they do is just completely glossed over. Yeah, it it kind of sucks. These guys are murderers too, and we're just we're just chilling with them. It's so bad. Yeah. I, I'm willing to ignore that for the most part. I, I I don't really think about it that much when thinking about uh, Kiva, but because this is a podcast, I want to bring up all the naughty bits about Kiva. The boys lament that nothing seems to work against Rook. That would be a good name for a band. Boys lament. Yeah, that could work. But Yuri picks up the Iksa knuckle and says that she has an idea. In 2008, Mitsuhide and Megami quickly reconcile. Mitsuhide lets Megami know that she's right about carrying on Yuri's fight. He then reveals that he won the lottery. Again. Okay, do you think do you think Mitsuhide is a fortune teller or a red man? He's a red man. Yeah. Megami, Megami inherited all of uh, Yuri's fighting prowess, while Mitsuhide somehow absorbed some magic that she didn't know she had? Or... It's it's the same magic that gives uh, Fangire's 22 years of good luck and life after uh, they meet her, but it's focused internally, so he has all the luck that Yuri gives Fangire's. We then cut, out, cut to the warthog Fangire getting a boner from watching a newscast of Mitsuhide that speculates on whether he's precognitive or something. In Maldemore, Keisuke and Wataru are discussing the recent revelation of Wataru actually being Kiva. Keisuke, while originally wary of Kiva being humanity's enemy, accepts that Wataru can do good with this power. Also, can I say that Wataru's like, I'm sorry I didn't tell you. He did tell... In his, in his like, second meeting with uh, Keisuke, Keisuke's like, have you seen Kiva? And just pointed at himself. Yeah. And Keisuke didn't take him seriously. <laughs> so dumb. And then Keisuke kept on beating him up and also murdered his dad's friend. So he's like, I don't think I'm going to tell him anymore. Keisuke offers to make Wataru his pupil. Wataru kind of objects to this since Kengo should be in that position. And while they're talking, Kengo himself is listening in. He runs in and demands to know what the meaning of all this is. Wataru tries smoothing things over, but Kengo angrily runs off. And also, Nago reveals that he's only a better person to Wataru and to no one else. Eh. The only reason he's nice to Wataru is because he likes MILFs. 
Outside, in the rain, Kengo despairs over the loss of his arm and Wataru's perceived betrayal. Shima comes walking up and asks what Kengo intends to do after this melodramatic phase. Yeah, he, well, he, he says it in the most melodramatic way. It's like, all tears eventually dry. But what's important is what you will do afterwards. In a BSO archive, Megami is poring over documents pertaining to Rook. She finds that Yuri left an important piece of information. Rook has a weak point, specifically the trumpeting cherub on the right shoulder of his Spengar form. Uh, This is one of the reasons I didn't like his, as you described it, sudden onset Fangire cancer. Yeah. Because we didn't see that mark. And, like, they could have seeded it in. They could, or they could have only had him wear like long sleeve shirts in the yeah. modern day. And then like this episode, like he's like, I will go to heaven. And he takes off his jacket and you see this giant black mark on him. Like that would have been cool. That would have been good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Keisuke comes up and says that he will be the one to defeat Rook. Also, once more, the, uh, they're literally in two different frames. Like the, uh, the boxes create one frame with Keisuke, one frame with Megumi, and it's so freaking good. Megumi once again begs him for Ixa, but he shuts her down. Later, Rook retrieves a bunch of balloons for a kid in a park. The kid thanks him and leaves, and Rook then declares to himself that he's done enough good deeds to get a ticket past the pearly gates. All right. Helped a lady go to the hospital, uh, save two kids from a truck. And got some balloons out of a tree. Time to go to heaven, bitches. Yep. Also, not not quite yet. First, he has to pose menacingly in a in a mansion. Yeah. In Maldemore, Wataru is confiding in Mio about his falling out with Kengo. He also tells her about Taiga, but she disappears while he's mid-sentence. Turns out, Bishop has just dragged her off to a meeting of the Checkmate Four. I, I love that Rook is... Rook is like all in on going to heaven. But then it's like, hey, we need you here to pose for our Checkmate 4 <laughs> annual calendar. <laughs> it's like, all right, as long as you give me ice cream afterward, as long as you get me a parfait. It's like Bishop and Rook are just shirtless washing a car in one, in one of the pictures. Oh, oh God. Bishop would definitely wear a swim shirt. <laughs> With stripes or maybe polka dots. Oh yeah, a goddamn 1920s uh, swimsuit. Bishop tells Mio that in addition to eliminating traitorous Fangires, her duties will also include protecting loyal Fangires from Kiva. Basically, Bishop is just that bitch that wants the drama from Mio trying to kill Wataru. Yeah. As Bishop finishes creepily putting on a like a black pearl anklet on Mio... The silhouetted visage of King comes walking in. Also, I'm going to reiterate, Rook is just chilling there. Rook is just sitting there like, God, when can I leave? I want to go to heaven already. In 1986, Yuri is running away from Jiro and Otoya with Ixa in her hands. She runs into Rook, and when he asks her for anything fun to do like he usually does... She replies that protecting her is an interesting activity. I kind of wish the 2008 stuff wasn't here, so we could have the hard cut of Yuri holding Eeks and being like, I have an idea, to Yuri running away and being like, 
Hey, Rook, defend me! I have a question. Do you think Kiba could still work if if they were to take all the 1986 content and just slap that together into like a first half of the series and to take the 2008 stuff and make that into the second half of the series? Do you think the show could still work that way? I, I think because of the way the show is set up with the parallels between the two different uh, time uh, time periods, it would work as a show, but it wouldn't be good because a lot of emotional payoff occurs in the future. Right. Or like a lot of things are like set up for the future and then something happens to the future like, ah, so what they did wasn't in vain. Huh. Although the episode with the time door would be hilarious because all of a sudden an asshole shows up from the future <laughs> and is like, you all made a terrible mistake. Also, I am in love with you so much. Here, have a button. All right, now I'm heading back. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. Yuri goes on to say that she needs to keep Ixa safe from Jiro and Otoya. She barks up how cool Ixa is and how only chosen ones can use it. Intrigued, Rook seizes Ixa and slaps Yuri away. Rook then henchines into the Ixa armor and begins fighting Jiro and the other two arms monsters. Otoya and Yuri also join the fight with their whip knives. Like, at one point, did you realize what their plan is? Uh, I knew they were up to something. I wasn't entirely certain that they would be using, like, the backlash that Proto Ixa has. Yeah, that they were using the Kenny Stone system. Yeah, the Kidney That's still one of our funniest jokes. Indeed. In 2008, Mitsuhide is continuing to entreat Megami to return home. They run into the Warthog Fengire, who intends to kill Mitsuhide. Megami, not having this, tries fighting off the Warthog, but she gets soundly beaten. She does surprisingly well. Like, this isn't actually support for a theory I'm going to tell you tell you at the end of this, but like it's it's more like, you know, writing action scenes like with human physics is hard when one person's supposed to be an immovable monster. But but this but this also gives some credence to a uh, Megami theory I have. An attack the Fengires always seem to use on Megami, and I guess Yuri as well, is that they backhand him. No, they grapple her and just knee her in the, into the chest. However, Keisuke comes to the rescue, henchines into rising Ixa, and starts fighting the Warthog. Rook also comes in and asks Megami to kill him so he can go to heaven. Megami tries to oblige, but she can barely make a dent on Rook. You know, he was Rook was just in a room with three people that can't that could send him to heaven. He could have just been like, hey, King, can you murder me? I don't think they they would have agreed to that because he's like one of their strongest enforcers. And if Rook's power works the same way as Queen's, then they would have to wait a while for for a new Rook to emerge. And during that time, they the checkmate force power base would be missing like a, a good chunk and they would be more vulnerable to maybe Kiva than they would be without him. But also, during the 22 years between Rook, like, re-entering the life stream and coming back as Daichan, they didn't have Rook. That's true. 
well, whatever. I was just making a funny little comment. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, Rook goes into Fengar form and tries killing Megami. In 1986, Rook, wearing the Ixa armor, still fighting Yuri, Otoya, and the arms monsters. The Ixa knuckle begins overheating and giving Rook kidney stones, which causes Rook to dehenshin. And they laugh at him and like, ha, joke's on you. You're going to have 22 years worth of kidney stones. And once they're finally gone, you're going to have amnesia. They're pretty bad kidney stones. They'll like migrate to your brain, you know? The Ixa knuckle slides over to Otoya, who explains that using Proto-Ixa without moderation has some nasty side effects. Otoya then henshins into Ixa himself and grapples the weakened Rook for Yuri to get some strikes in. You know, I I wonder, I think Ixa, the stronger the wielder, the worse the backlash is. Because when Otoya first used Ixa, well, first time we saw Ixa being used... Look, those kidney stones put Jiro in the hospital. Like, he was lying in a bed with, like, a beeping machine next to him. A heart rate monitor? Yeah, a beeping machine. <laughs> then Otoya used it, and he, he was fucked up, but, like, he was able to pretend to be fine. Something Jiro wasn't able to do. So I, I think the stronger the user is, the more they're able to push it. And so the worse the overheating backlash is. No, I think... Keisuke mentioned before that Ixa chooses its user, and I think Ixa has, this is maybe giving it some characteristics it may not have, but I think the AI of the and the Ixa knuckle can detect whether or not its wielder is human and or whether it's quote-unquote worthy. And I think if you're a monster like Jiro or Rook, I think it'll, I think it will intentionally overclock its systems and in such a way that it will force itself off the monster user. I don't think that's how, because like the spider fang guy used Ixa and it didn't hurt him at all. Like he, he barely used it though, but yeah, that, that is a fair point. I mean, that, that that's a good theory. I, that's a decent theory. I, I like mine, but you can have yours. Yay. But yeah, Otoya henchings into Ixa, grapples the weakened rook, enough for Yuri to get some strikes in. Cut to 2008, and Wataru enters the battle as Kiva. Kiva goes into emperor form and takes the heat off of Megami. Another cut to 1986, and Otoya de and passes the Ixa knuckle to Yuri. In 2008, the same thing happens as Keisuke passes Ixa over to Megami. We get parallel cuts as mother and daughter henshin into common rider Ixa. That moment was so fucking hype i loved it it was good yeah we get we get a fair bit of catharsis this episode i i like how it is like a, a lot of it is uh them uh like wailing on a weakened rook but rook does fight back and, and, and i like that because rook is a beast but then and you know that's some good strikes in but then yuri and megami just are like no and continue fucking his shit up in 1986, Yuri defeats Rook and creates the weak point on his right shoulder. Yeah, she just continually punches his right shoulder. Yep. It's so good. Because first, like, she powers up and hits him once on the shoulder. Like, oh, that's how it happens. And then you cut away. Then you cut back. And she hits him again with a finishing blow on the shoulder. And then it keeps on happening until who knows how many times. Until it cuts back and he's just sent flying backwards and starts, like, fading away 
Yeah, after getting the shit kicked out of him, Rook's body begins to disintegrate, and he declares that he'll eventually regenerate from this. Yuri retorts that even if she's not alive when Rook comes back, her spirit will defeat him again. In 2008, Megami exploits the weak point to put Rook down for good. So, good. And we get not one, but two close-up shots of Rook screaming in agony as the Asso woman finally beat his ass. I love, love, love that they got their revenge. That 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 the Asso line killed the man who took out their matriarch. Uh-huh. It wasn't taken from them. It wasn't Atoya and or and uh, Keisuke. Wataru was Wataru didn't finish him off. It was the Asso woman, and that's just so good. Kiva finishes off the Warthog Fangire, seemingly cueing the Final Fantasy victory fanfare. However, Mio comes walking up. She is now dressed in darker clothes with her hair done similarly to Maya. She assumes her own Fengire form, the Pearl Shell Fengire, and she jumps Kiva, so ends the episode. So yeah, she's the Pearl Shell Fengire, and her true name is a dress like an isolation cell. Given the poetic nature of Fengire names and the sort of faux symbolism, I, th- I think this one, this one actually holds up because it's a bit more succinct. She's in an isolation cell. She's like being bound and confined from humanity who she wants to connect with by her duties as queen. And it's a pretty glamorous position and therefore the dress. So, hey, I I just found uh, I just found a picture of the concept art for the Pearl Shell Fangire. It's pretty ballin'. It definitely looks a lot more regal than some of the more, I guess, animal based uh, Fangires. Yeah, also, um, she has literally Queen inscribed on her chest. Yeah. Which she presumably was like born with that there, which sort of speaks so much to how her upbringing must have been. Uh huh. Because she's some, she's super sympathetic to humans, but she's not, it's not like she was raised among humans and didn't know she was a Fangire. Like, she knows of both worlds. She knows about the duties of the queen. She knows about the Checkmate 4. But at the same time, she was, like, living as a human and stuff like that. Do, do you think her parents raised her to be, like, human beings are just like us? Or maybe her parents... This is me literally writing fan fiction as we talk, but, like, maybe her parents were diehard fangire traditionalists and her leaving to live among the humans was her like rejecting her parents' ideology. I honestly couldn't say what we I, we never really meet Mio's. I don't do we meet Mio's parents or get a sense of her upbringing? No, unfortunately. I I I, I like it cuz there's just so many so much room for head cannons. Yeah. Mio also kind of gets a more elaborate transformation than the rank and file fangire. She like makes a pose and there's sort of a stream of rainbow-colored life energy that issues forth from her as she ships into pearl-shell pearl form. But yeah, I'll go ahead and give my writer of the week. Oh, surprise, it's Yuri and Megami. I wonder why. What are the odds? Same. It's because this is their episode. They, they killed Rook. Like, not only did they do the final plan, but it was 
I mean, not the final blow, but it was Yuri's plan that that put the kidney stones in him, and it was Megami researching Rook, something that apparently no one else thought to do, to be like, there's a weak point. My monster of the week is Mitsuhide, because just when I thought he and Megami came to an understanding, he continued bitching at her to return home. Yeah, fuck Mitsuhide. And uh, for me, my monster of the week is going to be Bishop, because he dragged uh, Mio away from a heart-to-heart with Wataru. Yeah, I mean, he like rolled a natural 20 on stealth to do so as well. <laughs> he, he called in a favor from his friend Dio. I'm just going to need you to stop time, grab that woman for me, and then start time up again. As for the Tarot Corner, for once, we are actually going with a Major Arcana's literal imagery instead of symbolic meaning, and I'm giving strength to this episode because it depicts a woman subduing a lion. Alba. Yeah, oh my god, and Rick's the goddamn lion thing, Iyer. It was too fitting. This is pretty fitting. Uh, so before we go on to episode ratings, I want to speak on my Megami theory. Uh-huh. So first I'm going to bring up the fact that Megami has Yuri's last name i.e. her mother's name, and right. which implies some things, because this is in 2008, and Jap- Japan is, like, pretty traditional, even compa- like when it comes to gender roles, from what I've heard and read. Sure. But and, So, like, it would be almost impossible for a, for a person to only have their mother's maiden name if they had a father in the picture, right? Right. So from there, we can probably extrapolate that Yuri raised... Mitsuhide and Megami as a single mother. Okay. And if we go timing-wise, Megami and Watsudu are about the same age. Sure. So so they were conceived around the same time frame. The time around, you know, when they met Jiro and Maya and all that stuff. Right, you're getting to how you think Jiro is Megami and Mitsuhide's father, right? Yes. I, I, I believe that Jiro is... That at, at some point between Jiro getting into Castle Duran and where we are right now, Yuri and Jiro boned down and and conceived Megami and Mitsuhide. And some of that late wolf, uh, wolf in strength is uh, is how uh, Megami's so tough. Yeah, why like why she's somehow times able to get bursts of strength to throw like. Emperor form level Fangires off of her and stuff. It's it's my personal headcanon and there's like no confirmation or denial on it, but I I I love I I really like that theory. And there's some other there's some other uh there's some more evidence to back it up. Okay, I guess yeah, point that out to me as we get further in. But it's interest you know the trope of Betty and Veronica? Like uh how Betty's sort of the the more mundane, more Girl next door, yeah. Grounded romance option, whereas Veronica's the more exotic, dangerous one. Yeah, Betty will be leading the revolution. Veronica will be Aiden along with the rest of the rich. Basically. Uh, interesting how Otoya and Yuri getting with their respective Veronicas, if if your theory's correct. Yeah, also, also, can I say that J- Jiro... Last time Jiro and Yuri, you know saw each other really like Jiro like had her tied up in a forest and then broke down crying. And now, and now he's just like, I know you're living with this man 
and like have presumably boned down multiple times, but I'm still gonna flirt with you and ask for a kiss as a reward. And it's like, Jiro, my man, you are several weeks too late. <laughs> it's it's like it's like he's pushing a toy out of the way. No, 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 Yuri, thank me. But then in ten minutes they're gonna go their separate ways, and Yuri and Atoya are gonna go to their house and presumably sleep in the same bed. And Jiro's just going to like be homeless with his bros. <laughs> he's just gonna return to the forest to let the mushrooms take him. To <laughs> let the mushrooms take him. <laughs> I like that phrase. To let the mushroom. Oh, uh, what's your episode rating? I'm gonna give it a ten out of ten. Like, it, it could be better. I don't think it's a perfect episode, but, like, the moment of the mother-daughter head Shin killing Rook, like, that's a 12 out of 10 moment combined with the, like, better-than-average episode. I think it evens out to a 10 out of 10. All right. Uh, I liked it as well. I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. I was kind of disappointed that we didn't get feel the same as uh, the backing track to the fight at the end. But that's small potatoes to the emotional payoff we get as Rook, who had been an invincible juggernaut up to this point, finally gets put down. I also kind of live for moments in which a villain realizes that they're fucked. And we got two of those moments with Rook's dumb screaming face. Also, he, like, returned to the life stream, I guess? Like, I, I don't know why he, like, faded into light instead of shattering that first time. Like, maybe it's some sort of, like, defense mechanism that the checkmate four, maybe just Rook have when they take too much damage. Or it's just, like, I don't know why he faded into light instead of shattering. I don't know. With all the people he's killed and whose, and whose souls he's consumed, he might have been able to just earn an extra life to put it in video game parlance. Like, he did kill all of the Wolfen, and all of the Franken, and all of the Mermen. And a bunch of humans as well. That's about it. It's a, it's a shorter episode this week, folks, but we only covered one episode of Kiva, so yeah, what can you do? Anna, would you like to plug anything? I understand you have a project in the works. Uh, yes, probably by the end of this month, I will have a new podcast where I am going to be forcing two of my... They used to be friends. They might not be friends after this. I'm going to be forcing two people to watch High School DxD, which is a action harem uh, anime, which I unironically adore. It's pretty bad. I watched, like, the first season of it. It's... Ugh. Oh, I disagree with that, but okay. <laughs> I'll have you on as a guest at some point. I'll force you to watch some more. Okay, I'll bet. Uh, anything else you'd like to lay out? Uh, no, but uh, just keep an eye out. We'll keep an ear out. I'll mention it when uh, when it gets released, when we create a Twitter for it and everything. All right, cool. As for me, you can find me at Pokemon Primeval. It's another podcast I work on. Or we use various systems to explore what the world of Pokemon might have been like across different eras. And yeah, that's about it. It it's very good. Yay, thank you. Hit me with your hand, Shane. Dun, dun, dun. Hand. Shane.